Welcome guys to the JPS podcast and we are here with Mike Tushera, owner of Reactive Training Systems. Mike's a world champion IPF powerlifter and a world-renowned IPF coach. He's been powerlifting since 2001, I believe, and has won gold at the World Games and has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the lifting game. And he's one strong motherfucker. So welcome, Mike, and thank you for being on today, bro. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so for those listeners uh, who are unaware of what Reactive Training Systems is, Mike, I know you get asked this on every single podcast that you go on. Uh, do you mind outlining the fundamental tenets of Reactive Training Systems? Yeah, I mean, that's not so easy to do, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Like, we have some things that we're, we're known for, you know. Uh, but the really tools that we use for using uh, and to a large extent popularizing RPE-based training. And it's true, we use that a lot, but uh, it's also just a tool that we use. And, you know, in some uh, so, some situations, it's not an appropriate tool or not the best tool. So we definitely don't have a problem using a different tool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, It's definitely about what's going to produce the best results for the lifter and not trying to get yeah i guess known for is is a a just fine description we're kind of known for higher volumes in training and and maybe sorry mike uh it just cut out there when you started explaining the rpa sorry man the internet connection just didn't hold up sure do you uh do you record the video for this or do you just post audio no i record the video do video as well yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I got up to should RPA. I... Okay. Uh, just that, I, I guess what I was saying is that, uh, um, you know, RPE is definitely a tool that we use and we use it, you know, whenever the, whenever the situation warrants that we use it, you know, uh, whenever it's the best tool for the job, you know. Uh, it's something that we're known for a lot, but we try not to get married to any particular technique or method. And another example of that would be volume and frequency. We also are somewhat known for uh, being a, a group that pushes higher volumes in training and higher frequencies in training. Uh, and that's true as well, that we definitely uh, go toward that with a lot of lifters. Um but there are definitely some lifters who don't respond well to that and we won't push them that direction. You know, it's not, we don't push people in that direction because it's an absolute. Uh, We only push them in that direction if it's something that they're responding well to, Mm -hmm. you know? Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, a couple of brilliant points there. I don't think any coach should be married to any tool at any stage in their career. And with the RPE scale, so obviously this was derived from endurance sports and in the strength and conditioning world, you know, RIR, reps in reserves is, you know, the correct terminology. Um, For those listeners who may not be aware of what the RPE scale is, do you mind outlining what this means for you and how it applies to strength athletes? Sure. Uh, RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion. And as you mentioned, it comes predominantly from endurance sports and we've kind of borrowed it and changed it around a, a bit and tried to make it applicable for uh, strength sports and in particular repetition-based activities. So those types of – the types of lifting that you'd most often uh, come in contact with if you're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder or something like that. Um, so it's a 1 to 10 scale, and it's basically a rating of, of how hard did it feel, although I like to tell people uh, these days that it's not – this hyper emotional feeling, yeah. you know, it's not a, it's not how hard did it, you know, like, Oh, it felt really heavy. It's not that <laughs> it's, it's a rating of your performance, you know, mm. and we do that based on at least toward the upper end of the scale on kind of a reps and reserve sort of thing. So for example, a 10 RPE is a maximum effort. That's as, that's as hard as you can go in terms of completing the repetitions mm-hmm. of the set. A 9 RPE is going to be one rep left in the tank. An 8 RPE is going to be two reps left in the tank. Uh, But after that, it gets a little bit further away from the reps and reserve paradigm. Um, 
you know, and there's there's kind of a chart that we have made and published online that outlines, you know, what each uh, level is and kind of the definition for each one. And it does a couple things for us. One is is it allows us to communicate really clearly between a lifter and a coach. So say you're a lifter and you get done with the set and you say that was a nine RPE, then I know what that felt like to you and I know what I intended for it to be and I can see any sort of mismatch and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do a set and you come away and go, that felt really heavy, I don't really know what that means. You know, like, do you mean that hyper-emotional? Like, oh, it felt really heavy on my back. (laughs) Or do you mean like it's an assessment of your performance? Like, what does that mean? You know, and there's a lot of follow-up that needs to happen there to to Mm. get the communication opened up. And I think RPE cuts through a lot of that. But it also gives us a a way to auto-regulate the intensity, auto-regulate the weight on the bar. What I mean by that is if I send you to the gym and ask you to do a triple at a 9 RPE, then you're going to put whatever weight on the bar that you need to get that triple at a 9 RPE. So that means if you're having a good day or if you're just stronger, the training program is working uh, like it, we hope it should, you know, yeah. uh, then that's going to be more weight than normal, you know? Yeah. And conversely, if you're having a bad day, things aren't going away, then it'll be a little bit less weight than normal. So that's a really nice feature of RPE as well as that regulating effect. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, up the RPE scale is something that I've used both, both personally when I was powerlifting and I also use it now that I'm, you know, transitioning towards bodybuilding. It's something I've used a lot with my clients. Um, and the other alternative to RPE is percentage-based prescriptions. And you've written countless times about, you know, percentage-based programs um, versus RPE scale and how they're both tools to be used in the right context. Um, so what context would would give rise to you using a percentage-based program on? Okay, so the strengths of RPE are kind of what we talked about, that it gives you that auto-regulated effect, it opens up clear communication, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the weaknesses of RPE is that it can be difficult to use uh, the further down the scale you go. So a 10 RPE is pretty obvious. You know, if you do a set and you just grind out the last one and you crack a filling, you know that that's a 10 RPE, you know, it's obvious. 9 RPE is pretty obvious as well. 8 RPE is starting to get a little bit more fuzzy, but it's still pretty reliable. But 7, especially into 6, 5 RPE, that really submax effort work, uh, that's hard to put a rating on, you know. Is it a 6 or a 6.5? Yeah. It might have been a 5, you know. It's, it's hard to say it's exactly this, you know. And... Usually, if you're working in that type of submax effort zone, like what are the consequences of being off plus minus 5%, you know, mm. in terms of the weight that you load on the bar? Well, it's a little bit harder, a little bit easier than maybe it should have been. It's really not the end of the world, you know. So if you kind of consider that uh, a normal athlete, normal circumstances, a big swing in day-to-day, day-to-day performance would be like 5% swing in capability. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, the big end of normal. Like, if you had a five percent swing, it wouldn't be unheard of. But it would be like, wow, that's yeah. unusual. I wonder what happened. You know, um, so you know that I kind of use that to gauge what I expect. You know, now if if I have you do ninety percent for a triple, a five percent swing in performance could be disastrous. Yeah. You know. Um, <laughs> Now, if I'm having you do 80% for a triple, now keep in mind that the average lifter can do eight reps with 80%. If I have you do 80% for a triple and we're off by 5%, give or take, I mean, it's a little bit harder, a little bit easier than it should have been, you know? Uh, So the consequences aren't so severe. So I guess that's kind of a long way around of what I'm I'm getting at. In a situation like that, where you're working in the really submax effort zones, just... I, I would much rather just use the percentage, put a weight on the bar, and move on with things rather yeah. than, uh, you know, do a lot of hand wringing over whether we've got exactly a five or exactly a six RPE. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that's the main. In 
Also. I wouldn't say that's the only one, but that's probably the thing. Perfect, perfect. And that makes complete sense. And you've spoken before about how personality types and people who have controlled aggression will be suited best to using RPE. So do you have any checks and balances in place when you're working with an athlete to help get an assessment of, you know, whether they're assertive, overly aggressive or controlled aggressive uh, and whether or not, you know, that gives you an idea as to how to regulate their RPEs and so forth? Well, that's, that's a good question. We don't really do a lot of testing on it currently, but this is an area that I'm getting more and more interested in all the time. Um, yeah, and I do think that you want to have that sort of control aggressive mindset if you're going to use RPE. You have to want to put some more weight on the bar. And usually that's not a problem for lifters, although, you know, as the sport grows in popularity, you get a, a more and more diverse mm. set of people participating in it. So, yeah, you know, so it's it's more common than it used to be to have people who are content to just lift the same weights every week, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but that doesn't work so well. Like, all things being equal, add a little bit more weight to the bar. That's kind of a good default mindset to have, you know. And then, of course, if, if your RPE indicates that, um, you know, things aren't going so well, that's where the controlled and controlled aggressive comes into play. You have to be able to pull, to back. pull the throttle back a little yeah. bit, you know. And, um, but, yeah, the whole personality thing, I think, is, is fascinating. And we're starting to do some more uh, looking into on personality details and, and stuff like that. And not, not just from an RPE standpoint, but from an overall programming standpoint. We see lots of things that so far have just been kind of casual observations. Like, mm. uh, I don't notice, you know think and act this way, um, you know, people who think and act this way uh, do one thing, yeah. and then people who uh, think and act this other way, they do better if we program this this other way, you know, and things like that. So um, I want to start peeling back the layers on that a little bit more, yeah. figure out, see if I can figure out um, maybe there's a, a bit more to it, you know. Mm. It's very cool. It's very cool. And yeah. what do you see to be the common issues besides the obvious, which are people not having a good understanding of, you know, how hard things are perceived subjectively versus objectively? Uh, what are the common issues you see with people trying to use the RPA scale? Uh, are there any issues like glaring issues that you've noticed over the years when watching people uh, apply this tool? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess probably the biggest one is, uh, accurate rating, you know, I mean, that would be the, that would be the main source of error, you know, I mean, otherwise it's a, it's a fairly simple tool to use, you know, um, so accuracy of rating is probably the big thing, but it's not, you know, an, an intrinsic capability. It's not like you can either do it or you can't, yeah. it's, it's only a skill that you get better at with practice. And that's why if I if I do send somebody to the gym and ask them to do a triple at a nine RPE, and they come back and and say they did a triple at a ten or, or worse, they they missed the third rep. Yeah. You know, I don't get too bent out of shape about it. I mean, no, it's not what I wanted them to do. It, it's not ideal, um, but if they learn something from it and they're more accurate at rating uh, RPEs in the future, that's that's a, a price that I'm willing to pay because, mm. okay, yeah, that one set was not ideal and that may throw things off uh, here in the short or midterm. But if you learn something valuable from that, then that's going to carry forward to every set that you do from here on. For sure. You know, so that's that's a trade I'm willing to make more more often than not. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And one of the major criticisms of the RPA scale, uh, which is something that Johnny Candido has brought up and I know you've replied and responded online. I definitely watched that. Um, but is the psychological factors and for the more advanced athletes, not knowing what they're going in uh, to hit on a specific day can sometimes 
um, make visualizing that lift a little bit harder and it can also make uh, peaking a little bit more difficult to manage. So can you outline for the listeners uh, your response to these criticisms of RPE? Yeah, sure. I don't think that you should go into the gym with no idea of what you're doing. You know, um, if I sent you to the gym and said, do a triple at a nine RPE, there's a little bit of homework that needs to be done for that. You know, um, ideally you would figure out what your target weight was going to be, you know, and as you work up to that, you're monitoring your RPE, uh, you know, with an eye on that target weight. Um, and then if things are looking good, then you'll hit that target weight. You may push a, a bit past it. If things are looking not so good, then you'll pull the throttle back and, and go below that target weight. It's just something to aim at. And that works way better than just going there. So you wouldn't go into the gym, you know, with no plan. You know, you definitely would have a plan uh, for, you know, at least what that target weight is going to be. Um, and you may plan a little bit more, but the idea of RPE is that you're going to modify that plan based on the day's actual real world performance. Um, and we even have kind of built that into some of our online systems. So for example, we've got, uh, an online training log that we use, uh, that's actually free for anybody to use anybody that wants to use it. Um, you can just, sign up for a free login on the website and there you go. You've got access to a, a, an online awesome. training log uh, for free. And, and as part of those tools, there's a workout planner um, where you can, it will look at your previous performance of that exercise and you tell it what you want to do today. Today I want to do five reps at an eight RPE or whatever. And it'll come up with a projected weight, a goal weight for you, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, you can add that into your your training plan for the day, but it's something that you have in front of you, you know, something to look at going going into the gym, mm. and I think that that actually helps lifters peak better um, because it's a plan that that adapts to them. You know, mm. um, what I see happen to some lifters that have a plan maybe too rigid, and they get uh, a bit too invested into that plan as they start to, uh, approach the competition. Um, let's say some one workout doesn't go quite so well, you know, well in the next workout, they, uh, try to make up for it, mm. you know? Yeah, and definitely. <laughs> so, so that's a, ends up being a bad training decision. And so that workout goes poorly as well. And that snowballs into the next one and the next one, and the next one. And so it, it makes it so that one bad training session can create a bad training decision that snowballs for weeks, mm. you know? So that's no good. You need to have some way to kind of break that cycle. Um, so the target weights I think are a good way to do that because they look at last week's performance and say, okay, forget about where you wanted to be. Forget about, you know, the ideal situation, this is where you are. Mm. This is the most current information we have on your performance abilities right now. So let's improve on that a little bit, you know, and I think that's the best way to go about it. Now, if you can design a training program that works for the athlete and the athletes getting stronger and stronger and stronger, that will still work. You know, it says, Hey, last week you set a PR that's where you're at right now. So this week, let's try to build on that a little bit. And let's say you just have another fantastic week. You set another PR, maybe bigger than you expected. Well, that's great too. So next week, we'll take that information. This is where you are now and build on that. You know, so it it snowballs things in a good way, you know. Definitely, definitely. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was obviously there's a lot of gender differences uh, that influence training, response to training, and uh, everything else in between. Um, how have you found females and males to respond to the RPE scale? Are males more consistent in that we don't have this special thing once a month versus the females who you know, obviously have the menstrual cycle, which has seen their strength you know, fluctuate? Have you noticed using the RPE scale that you're able to 
adapt to that better? And is there big differences between genders in terms of consistency in training? I haven't looked at it that closely. I haven't looked at gender differences that closely, to be honest. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a thing that, you know, whether those differences exist or not, I feel like the RPE has a distinct benefit. Mm. And if those differences are there, then it will have even more of a benefit. Yeah, exactly. And so it's not been a matter of uh, mitigating any potential downsides. It's it's like, well, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is this is a good tool to use. The best case scenario is it's better than we expected. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's just not been a huge priority to, yeah, to look into yeah. it. You know, in a more general sense, um, I mean, we – it's kind of an interesting spot, right? That just gender differences in, in general in mm. strength training, because on a, on a practitioner standpoint, there's some things that we've noticed some tendencies that, that we've noticed. But as we start to look at things a bit more closely, um, sometimes those gender differences kind of disappear a little bit. Uh, for Definitely. instance, it's kind of common knowledge that, um, that you know, women tend to be better at repetitions at a given percent of one rep max than than men are. Um, now we looked at that in our recent project momentum that we mm. did, and if I look at the average repetitions on uh, on a movement um, differences between men and women, there really aren't any. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, the average repetitions at eighty percent for both men and women was. Uh, eight or eight point six, somewhere in there, but mm-hmm. um, they were really, really similar. Now there are some confounding variables there too. Like I didn't really look at it, um, you know, at other potential issues. Like I, I didn't, I don't remember looking to see if there were Wilkes score differences between the two. Um, and our sample size of women was a lot smaller than the sample of men. So there's some potential issues there, but it's interesting at least you know, that this is a population of people who I would normally work with, you know, mm. and there's a perceived difference. But now when I look at it a, a bit closer, mm. maybe there's maybe there's not as much of a difference in that way. You know, um, another thing that we tend to notice is that um, women tend to be able to handle uh, greater training stresses and, and training volumes in general. And that one does seem to, to bear out, uh, the women that I've worked with, you know, say the, the women with the highest work capacity that I've worked with, uh, can far and away handle more training workload than the, the men with the highest work capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's some interesting confounding variables there too. Uh, the main one being body weight, you know, um, the lifter I'm thinking actually is a Australian lifter, Liz Liz Craven. Yeah. She can handle an insane amount of training volume, you know, but I don't have that many 52 kilo men that I work with that (laughs) to compare her against, you know? So the body weight difference, I think it matters, you know, how much does it matter? Well, I I really don't know at this Mm -hmm. point. And, and again, in a practical setting, it turns out that it's probably not that important because all this information does is hopefully it gives us a, a decent starting point. And, then we and you fall. probably have that anyway, you know, uh, you probably have a decent starting point just because you've been training, you have a bit of training history. Yeah. So what you know has worked so far, there we go. That's a starting point. And from there we can um, manage some experimentation and look and see what the, the real world effects of the training are. And, uh, we'll be able to, to manage, um, future training adjustments from there. Brilliant. A lot of uh, really important points there. So obviously, we in most cases, unless we have you know a lot of information on somebody, start with very broad generalizations we know work for most people, and then over time we collect data, um, which is obviously critical to the success of programming. So outside of RPE, what is the other information you collect on your lifters to assess their response to training? So obviously numbers on you know the weight on the bar is going to be the big one but what are some other things you're looking at when assessing response to program well if we're if we're talking specifically about response to training 
then I'm looking at the training log and I'm looking at their track data. Yep. Uh, track is another uh, free tool that we have on the website. Uh, it's an athlete monitoring tool. Uh, there's a heart rate test and a subjective questionnaire. And essentially it gives you some insight on, um, on how well the athlete is recovered, how well are they recovering, um, how well are they adjusting to a given training load. And by that's like, uh, think of that, like the, the temperature gauge on a car, you know, yeah. you can tell how hot the engine's running, you know, and if it's like running that. too hot, then, then, you know, maybe <laughs> things need to throttle back a little bit, you know? Uh, so that's one thing uh, that we look at. And the other thing that we look at probably most often is the lifters estimated one RM. Uh, so, and that's derived from their training log. Um, so by looking at their training log, we can tell, are they progressing? How fast are they progressing? And then looking at their track data, we can tell uh, how well they're recovering. And that's probably the most interesting things in terms of measuring training response. I mean, yeah. those are the two things that you care about. You know, uh, training response is what you're after. You're, you want that SMA 1RM to be going up. And then the track uh, information gives us an idea of um, – you know, are we pushing things too hard or not hard enough and things yep. like that. And from there, the other training metrics that we can look at, you know, things like volume, intensity, exercise selection, and, you know, all the rest. Mm. All that stuff is is useful in determining what did we actually do to create X training effect, you know. Yep. So say you have a, a training block. When you look back at that training block, you go, wow, the estimated 1RM really shot up during this training block. Now you have to say, okay, what, what was it about that training block that produced that result? You know, sure. cause there's always a lot of things going on in a training yeah. block. Some things are common to all the training blocks, you know? Um, well we, we did, um, we, you know, we did a moderate intensity block, you know, lots of sets of five. Well, if we look back through the other block reviews that we've got, maybe we find that, you know, Sometimes we do sets of five and it's great. Sometimes we do sets of five and it's terrible. You know, well, okay, so that maybe isn't the main thing that, you know, the main piece of information yeah, that we're yeah. looking for. What else can we find? You know, oh, well, we did pin squats. And every time we do pin squats, we have a good training cycle. Well, well, that's really important information to know. Yeah. You know, and that way you have a lifter that's training up for a, a major competition going to nationals or something like that. Uh, or whatever their major competition is, well, you can make sure to have those essential components in the program, you know, and it gives you an idea for what things still need some experimentation. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. And in saying that, obviously when you find what works, it's very hard for coaches uh, to not get married to a certain protocol or a method because you know when something's working we we can be uh, reluctant to change and yeah this, this is definitely something I'm sure you've experienced I've experienced at times uh, so what are your tips and what like checks and balances do you have in place to ensure that with your programming you stay open-minded and aware of your own personal biases well a lot of it is relying on that log you know and it, it's it's building a training process that, you know, so I don't think you can rely on, on your subjective gut feel sort of emotional, uh, uh, tugs when it comes time to write the training program. You know, I think you need to have developed a training process that gets around as much of that as possible. So to give you an idea, uh, let's say I've got a lifter who's training up for one of those major competitions. Um, so like if, if they were training for a minor competition, we may be a bit more experimental, you know, uh, we may say, well, we know that this works, but we don't know about these other things. And, and I think, um, you know, I just get an idea that, you know, from looking at past training blocks, maybe you would respond well to a really low intensity or, or whatever, you know? So when you're far further away from a major competition, that's the time to increase your experimentation yep. and gather that really essential information so that you have it when it's time uh, to 
to train for a big one. Definitely. You know, and that's not random experimentation either. You should do things that you expect will work. They're educated guesses. Yep. So the more yeah. educated <laughs> you can be, the better off. Yeah. You know, but then when it's time to train for those major competitions, you want you don't want to leave things uh, up for chance. So you decrease the amount of experimentation that you're doing. So what I do in a situation like that, I'll go back through those block reviews and say, okay, so when we train like this and like this and like this, that's what produced the best results. Okay. And I apologize for, for being so vague on it, but it's just by definition a conceptual thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, um, you know, some people you're going to find out that they respond really, really great to high frequencies. Other people, it's more about an exercise selection. Other people, it's about uh, an intensity. It could be, you know, it's not, you know, just anything, but, you know, there's a pretty wide range of things that uh, an athlete can respond really well to. Mm. And you don't want to get too pigeonholed into looking at just one thing. You know, you're looking for that training strategy that produces the best results for this athlete. You know, so you would go back through those uh, block reviews and, construct a training cycle that's based on the best results for that athlete. So to, to give you an example, uh, there are things that I'm finding out that work pretty well for my bench press, you know, um, but they're not the same things that will work well for someone else's bench press. And I think if we're kind of left up to our own devices, the tendency is to project our own experience onto the client, you know, and that's why I think it's important to have some sort of a process that gets you away from that. Yeah. Some something that says, you know, hey, this client really responds well to super high intensities. And you'll get a little nervous programming mm-hmm. that. You're like, oh man, you know, yeah. like if this was my program, this <laughs> yeah. would be a bad idea, you know. But you know that for this person, it's it's great because you've done it already and it's been great. You know, now it's not a guarantee that it's going to be great this time around, but I mean, you're a lot more certain of that than you would be of just, you know, pulling an idea out of thin air. Definitely. Some, some great tips there. And yes, it is such a hard thing to answer because it's very conceptual in nature, but I appreciate you, uh, you bearing with me there. And no, no, I enjoy the conceptual stuff. I just know that, uh, So obviously everybody adapts very differently to training. That's why individualizing programs is so important and adaptable lifters. So there's going to be obviously some people who just respond better uh, to certain things than others. And at what point does an athlete need to get to before you recognize that they've stopped adapting to a specific protocol? Is it like performance is going down? Is it things are slowing down like when do you say okay now we'll try something different or look to different uh ways to program for that person well nowadays it's kind of an ongoing process you know before i would when we found an effective training strategy for for someone i would kind of let them sit on it and just extract everything they could out of it and when you know the results had more or less tapered off um, we'd start looking for something else, but now the process is a a lot more blended, you know? So what we'll do is look at their competition schedule. And if I have a couple of development cycles that I can experiment with, you know, that's great. You know, that's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look a little bit more, you know, um, and it kind of depends on what we know about the athlete. If we haven't tried anything that's worked, and unfortunately that happens sometimes. Um, there was one lifter in particular I was coaching and every time I would give him something that, you know, Hey, I you know, thought it was going to work. Otherwise I wouldn't have given it to him. Um, his lifts just didn't go anywhere. And at one point he was starting to get frustrated and he said, you know, maybe I should just do a bodybuilding, uh, training block or two. Uh, all right, fine. You know, uh, over, over to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something that's very different from, you know, yeah. the frustrations that he was experiencing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and whenever we put him on that program, his strength went up. And I was like, yeah. well, that's uh. weird, <laughs> you know. Uh, totally not expected, yeah, right. you know. Um, but, 
you know, so we repeated that experiment a couple times and, you know, yeah, it kind of bore out that for this guy, he just responded better to things that were a bit higher rep, a bit more volume, a bit less intensity focused and things of that nature. Yeah, right. You know, so if you have somebody like that who you're trying some things and nothing seems to work, then you experiment a bit more wildly, you know, yeah. not, not wildly as in random, but just, yeah. uh, you're more willing to make some big changes, you know? Now, if you have somebody who you already have a pretty good picture, you know, you've worked with them for a while, you, you, you know, these are the things that they tend to respond well to. I mean, you don't need to make huge sweeping, uh, uh, changes to that. But it's a good idea to try, maybe try some different exercises, maybe try modulating the intensity a bit wider than you normally would or changing the frequency or something like that, just so you put a little bit more tools in the toolbox. If you only have one set of exercises, one set of intensities that produce results for a lifter, well, then basically you can put together one effective training block, mm. you know, um, and that's not a real great long-term plan to get get you into a competition now if you can find two or ideally even three uh really really effective training blocks for a person then i mean that's a really great situation and that's a situation where you may really reduce the amount of experimentation yeah, because you've got to sock through yeah you've got a good arsenal of things yeah. at that point you know so really just uh spend a if you had three really good training blocks, you could probably milk that for a year or more. Um, you know, you're going to, you're going to have a good couple of years. Yeah. There, I think. <laughs> that That's the dream. A good couple of years. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can get a long way in a good couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So something I wanted to get your thoughts on today, Mike, a little bit outside of RPE and all of the program design discussion, although it still uh, obviously relates to that somewhat, is overload work and super maximal loading uh, for improving one rep max strength. So you've recently uh, uploaded a video, which I suggest all the listeners go and watch, on uh, knee wraps and the slingshot. I've used the mm -hmm. slingshot to great effect, um, whether that was because of physiological uh, reasons but, or psychological reasons, just having that confidence uh, with heavier loads in my hands, what would be uh, your reasons for implementing these tools uh, into a program and when would it be appropriate for a lifter? Um, first, I think it's important to say that you know, whether the effect was psychological or physiological, I mean, it doesn't really matter too much if you're exactly. a powerlifter. Yeah. You know, if your lift went up, then your lift went up. You exactly. don't, they don't take 10 pounds <laughs> off your total because your gains were psychological in nature, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it, if it works, then it works. It works yeah. And it's not that why isn't important. It is important, but it's important for a different reason. Exactly. You know, that knowing that something works or that it doesn't work is probably the most important. And then why it can come uh, a bit later, uh, because so often, you know, knowing why and then reasoning out something additional doesn't really pan out. Like that's why we actually have to do experiments and things like that. Yeah. Um, but back to the, the superloading overload work, uh, it's something that I find is effective for, a, a good number of lifters. I, I hesitate to say the majority. Um, I don't know if it's really a majority or not, but uh, it's not uncommon at all for me to find lifters that it's effective for. Um, it's so common, in fact, that it's kind of the default position for me, at least in the bench. Uh, we have a little bit more, um, you know, available movement slots yeah, uh, in a given training week for for bench training. You know, you're not going to squat, you know, um, you're not going to do six different exercises yeah. a week for your squat probably, you know, you uh, beat three up. tends to, be, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's just a lot. Yeah. Um, so for the bench, we included a lot more often, uh, but I've still found it to be effective for the squat and the deadlift as well. Um, ways to do it. Um, like you mentioned, uh, I like the slingshot. I like knee wraps and the squat because you still feel the entire weight, yeah. uh, as it is through the full range of motion, you know, 
even if you have some sort of material assistance at certain joint angles uh, and around certain joints, you know, that's that's different for sure. Uh, but at least you have the full load in your hands, the full load on your back. And and I feel like that's important. Um, not essential, but yeah. useful, you know. Um, if you don't have access to knee wraps or you don't like knee wraps or a slingshot or whatever, uh, then chains and bands and stuff like that works just fine. Partial range of movement, that, that stuff works just fine. And we do that pretty regularly as well. Um, but it's a thing that, you know, I like to try it and see, do we get a positive result from it uh, or not? You know, and if we don't, then we'll use that slot for something else. Uh, but it's not at all uncommon that we see people that get a positive transfer from it. You know, as far as explaining why, you know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit outside of my scope. Yeah. Uh, I know that a lot of people have, have looked at it and people, um, you know, pose different explanations for it. And, you know, there's much greater debate as far as why it works, you yeah. know, and, and that's fine. But, I think more work needs to be done there. And just because we, you know, can't currently rationalize it or, yes. you know, can't conceptualize it, that doesn't mean that the phenomenon is not true. <laughs> you know, Definitely. like we see people that do it and get a result from it. So, you know, that that is the thing. And uh, it's it's not something that should be ignored, especially for, for upper level athletes. Yeah. You know, you're not seeing a result just from anything that you do, you know. Um, so when you do see a result, it's much more likely due to something that you did different, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. So many uh, good points there. And I think the most important one is that sometimes what we see in practice is ahead of what researchers are able to deduct and reason uh, in terms of finding out why certain phenomenons occur. Sometimes the, the bros in the gym are a little bit ahead of the science in that sense and we're it doesn't mean that we should remove protocols or stop doing something just because we can't find out or explain 100% why that is. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So the people in the gym are going to be um, – in some ways they're going to be ahead, right? Just by the – like if you consider that – people in the gym are free to experiment a lot wider and a lot faster than people in a, in a more laboratory setting. So in some ways they're going to be ahead, but they're going to be wrong a lot more often oh, as well. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it just depends on how well do you want to, like how sure do you want to be of it? Mm. You know, if you require a, a 95% confidence that something that you're going to add works, then yeah, you should probably stick to published research. But even then, you know, you're talking about, you know, confidence in uh, what's going to be effective for the average person. Exactly right. And truth be told, you're not average. And, you know, things that are working for the average person may not, may not be effective for you. Definitely. So, and yeah. It's, study designs aren't also replicating or, you know, indicative of what occurs, you know, in the real world. Like, I, I'm sure there's not too many studies that have, you know, people squatting 90% or above, uh, using knee wraps, slingshots, you know, for example, and things like this. Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because, and that's a big part of the drive for why we started doing Project Momentum. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to test some of these ideas in a more practical setting the idea was not to, you know, shed any light on, uh, you know, an esoteric training phenomenon or anything like that. Um, it's not about trying to get it published in a journal or contribute to, to, you know, big S science, you know, it's more about looking at how do things pan out in a practical setting? Um, is there anything that we can learn about what we should do as coaches to make things more effective for people in the gym, you know, it, providing that great starting point. That's what we want to do as coaches is provide a training program. That's a really great starting point and then, uh, learn from the athlete response so that we can get an even better program the next block around, you know, 
so um, yeah, I, I think there's it's important to to have an understanding of both and just I guess to have a bit of literacy about it to know what the uh, potential limitations of it are um, to understand a bit more about you know uh, individual variants. Um, that was a, a really interesting thing that we figured out in the last, I mean, I shouldn't say we figured it out in the last project, but, uh, it was apparent in the last project that we did. So we were doing this, um, 80% rep test, um, and trying to figure out if how many reps you could do with 80% told you anything about, uh, how you should train. And it turns out that it indicates a little bit, you know, uh, if you can do, you know, like I said, the, the average reps at 80% is right around, right around eight. So if you can do more than eight reps with 80%, then it indicates you should probably train with fewer reps and heavier weights. If you can do low reps at 80%, meaning less than eight, you should probably train with higher reps and, and slightly lower weights. Um, you know, we wanted to kind of test that idea in a practical setting, but the difference wasn't huge. And there were some people, um, let me back up for a second. So basically what it indicated was people that trained what they were bad at on average got a better result than people who trained what they were good at. But there were some people who trained what they were bad at that didn't do so well. And some people, um, some people who were training what they were, uh, good at that did great, you know, now those were you know, more of the exceptions rather than the rules. But if you were to ask one of those people, um, you know, what they thought, that would be the most important data point for them. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if you did everything that you were supposed to, but got a bad result, then I mean, maybe <laughs> you should try doing things you're not supposed to and see if you get a yeah. better result because getting a better result is, is obviously preferable, <laughs> you know, definitely. And, and I, re I really respect that, uh, you know, as a coach, you're continually trying to learn more and you're bringing the research into a very practical setting and conducting that yourself. I, I do have a lot of respect for that. And it's something that I think needs to occur more of. And I know there's a number of uh, strength and conditioning coaches who are starting to collect athletes to observe them and watch them over time and whatnot now, which is awesome to see. One of the last questions I have for you today, Mike, is how do movement mechanics influence training frequency? So I've heard you speak a lot about the example of Liz Craven, who trains four times a week versus uh, Mark Robb, who trains three times a week. Uh, so what are the factors that differentiate between them and what warrants you to make that decision in terms of their frequency? Good question. As far as like distilling it down into a specific why, uh, and especially in terms of taking it to the level of mechanics, I'm not sure that that I can do that, or that uh, you know I could say with any sort of certainty that that's the the factor. So, for example, um, Mark. Let me start the at the other position. So, uh, just to give a bit more background. Uh, Liz trains with a higher frequency and she can push the training volumes to fairly superhuman <laughs> levels, <laughs> you know, and, and get really great returns on that, you know, but then, uh, when I was working with, uh, Mark Robb, who's a masters two athlete, uh, he's been training for 30 years. Um, he's got a pretty extensive injury history. Uh, now he's still, you know, top shelf athlete, you know, he's multi-time uh, world champion, um, world record holder and, and whatnot. Um, his training was three sessions per week. The frequency was a bit lower, uh, and we had to deload, uh, much, much more frequently. Um, like every third week versus every sixth or seventh week, uh, yeah. with Liz. So, um, so there was a, a big disparity there. Now, uh, some additional observations, you know, let's take the squat, for example, Liz, I would say is more, uh, mechanically built to squat than Mark is, but I don't know to what extent that 
is the driving factor between the differences in training volume. You know, like we said, um, there's a pretty enormous difference in body weight. Liz is 52 kilos. Mark is 110 kilos. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, you know, a pretty significant difference in, in age and time under the bar as well, as well as uh, training history. So what really drove that decision for me was more looking at the, the training results, you know, uh, again, going back to estimated one RMs and track scores, you know, we started them and I, I couldn't say that we started them from a similar, uh, starting program. I doubt that's true. Um, but I, I remember that wherever we started Mark, uh, after a couple of weeks, it was apparent that it was too much. Yep. You know, we're looking at his track scores, the engine's running too hot. So we had to pull things back. And when we did that, uh, the results he was getting improved. You know, I mean, it's a little counterintuitive when you think about it on a surface level, you know, well, he did less training and got better results. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, because his recovery was a lot better, you know. Uh, so it's not so counterintuitive yeah. if you think about it a bit more deeply. And um, Liz kind of had the opposite experience. We Wherever we started her out from, um, she was well recovered. So whenever we needed to push things a bit more to get a better training effect, uh, we had plenty of, um, you know, reserve capacity yeah. to be able to do that, you know, so, and, and both programs kind of evolve, uh, in their own directions, you know, and, and after a while, that's kind of how we ended up with, uh, the programs being so different. I would say that it's, it's likely that, you know, differences in mechanics have something to do with it. You know, if you have somebody who is, say they're a fairly strong deadlifter, but they pull with a rounded back. In my experience, they're going to tend to be a little bit more on the low frequency side for deadlifting. Yeah. Um, even if they're not that great of a deadlifter, if they're just anthro uh, anthropometrically not built for that lift, it seems like it's a more taxing thing for them to yeah. do. You know, um, I can't quantify that at this point, and and I can't even really be uh, super confident that that's that that's a valid observation. I think it is. Um, that's what I, that's what I see, you know, but it's not like we've tested it at this yeah. point or, or really tried to look into the statistics of it, you know, definitely. And the reason that I love, uh, that comparison so much of Liz and Mark is because it just highlights how most people will probably start on a very, uh, broad general program, but it's the, information and the data collected uh, that helps you assess response to training and then make necessary adjustments and it's just so amazing to see how two people can go in two completely yeah. different directions and I, I really do enjoy, sure, yeah. enjoy bringing up uh, that conversation and watching yeah. how that unfolded. It's very cool to see. So yeah. Mike, thank you very much for being on the podcast today, man. I really enjoyed it. I apologize if I sound a little bit nasally. Um, getting quite sick but i do appreciate you being on thank you so much for your time today and we'll speak to you next time my pleasure thank you thank you